We've uh, made it through verse 17, uh, verse 18, we'll start and uh, we'll read a little bit here. For I consider, this is Paul, Romans 8, 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. You could summarize it in one way and just say, you know, no matter what you're going through, the glory that's coming is better. Amen. No matter how hard you feel like it is, hey, the future is better. Tomorrow can be better. Eternity is certainly better. So the sufferings of this present time, though, it's like, well, yeah, we're in the earth. We're all suffering. Uh, but let's, let's tie it to the, the Christian sufferings, not just worldly sufferings, because there's enough of those that you can overcome by faith. Christian sufferings are a little bit different. And a lot of what you see the apostles writing about are the afflictions and persecutions in the name of Christ that they were uh, getting from all the heathen. Well, you're not getting that much, right? You get a little bit of persecution from family and coworkers, but not much, right? And, and, and then the, the law backs you up where <laughs> they really can't do much to you. But in these days, in the Bible days, they were really getting, they were really suffering. If they were called a Christian, they were really, really suffering at the hands of people and shunned and all that. So you got to put it in context that that's primarily what he's talking about. He's not talking about you just suffering with a, with a sprained ankle or something like that. Um, even though that's part of worldly tribulation, you can be healed of that. You can avoid that. God can lead you around that. But Christian suffering, he doesn't necessarily lead you around. He makes you go right through it. Christian persecution, he did not say he would deliver you from. Jesus actually promised you would have some. So when you get persecuted, uh, be, be glad that it's coming to pass, just like Jesus promised. What Jesus said, he said, rejoice when you're persecuted. Why? Because that's the plan. The enthusiasm is overwhelming. Well, he went on and told you why. Rejoice when you're persecuted for righteousness sake, for great is your reward in heaven. So you need to learn how to rejoice when you're persecuted, made fun of, when the family conflict occurs. Because whatever you're going through with all that, it's not worthy, not even worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. And you can have some of that glory tomorrow. You don't have to wait till heaven. You can have the glory tomorrow. Amen. You can walk away feeling close to Jesus that you have experienced what he experienced. That you are united in spirit with him and you understand what he felt on the cross. Woo. Hey, if we live with him, uh, it, it's because we also died with him. We died with him. We rose with him. We live with him. Hallelujah. This life I now live in the flesh, I don't live really by my own self, but by the faith in the son of God. I'm united with him. Practice that. Think about that. Verse 19, for the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. What is that saying? It's saying that even creation itself wants to see sons of God birthed. All of creation wants to see us. All of creation wants to see the next sinner saved. The whole earth groans and travails as if in birth until the manifestation of the sons of God. 
until people hear the gospel and believe in Jesus and are born into the kingdom. The whole creation wants that. And then it says, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, uh, meaning the earth was put in bondage, not because it wanted to be, but because of sin. That's all it's really saying there. But the creation itself will be delivered from that bondage into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. And that's one reason why Christians should feel the yearning to get the next person saved. You should at some point in your week be able to take 15 seconds, look at a sinner, look at a person and, and think, oh, I want them to be saved. Practice that. Practice that. You need to practice getting a burden for lost people. If the earth can groan for lost people, can't you? If, if the rocks can cry out, can't, can't you yearn for the next person to be touched by God? Got to practice it though. You can't be so busy. You can't just live like a heathen. You can't just live the way of the world. You got to pause and let God, you know, have part of your heart there. Just practice 15 seconds. Think about, I sure hope that person doesn't go to hell. That would be terrible. I want them to be saved. And then groan a bit by faith. (laughs) Don't do that out loud. You won't win people if you groan at them. What are you doing? I was just groaning for you. You get arrested for that stuff. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs and together until now. And, and, and part of this is going to talk about intercession. And it's comparable to a woman travailing in birth where you're yearning to get this out. You're, you're, there's a pain associated with getting the next person saved. So in prayer sometimes there's a feeling of, oh, where you're just groaning. And so we're going to read that in a minute. But same thing here, verse 22. Okay, verse 23. Not only that, but we're, we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. Now he's going to say that part of this groanings, part of this groaning is that you want to be out of that body that's the dirt of the earth, that's stuck to this earth life. You want to get out of here, don't you? So that's why the natural feeling of every Christian is, Jesus, please come. Jesus, when do I get to leave here? There's a groaning about that. Now, by faith, hey, you know the Bible keeps you here. By faith, you know you have a purpose in the earth. You can't leave the earth prematurely. But deep down, you know your home is heaven, and you know that that's destiny, and you, and you're, and you want to get out of this. You want your body to be redeemed. You want to get your glorified body. I mean, you don't even have to be sick or in pain to know that you need out of this body or you need the body to be fixed. And so that'll happen when Jesus returns. Our corrupted body will put on incorruption and we'll go fly away with a glorified body. All right. Verse 24, for we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? Well, that is, it's just a principle of faith, hope, uh, hope, meaning your destiny, like the thing you want, your hope is your desire. It's your future expectation. So once you get your future expectation, you don't hope for it anymore. 
Like you want a new car. I want a new car. I need a new car. I'm saving for a new car. Oh, and then I look it up and I find it and I go and I get my new car. Well, you don't have that same hope anymore. Now you're on to the next thing. That's all he's saying. And so hope is very important so that you can get your miracles. Hope is important so that you can fulfill your destiny. Hope is important so that you can do the will of God tomorrow. Hope is important so that you can receive promises. But now she's not hoping for being delivered from pork, uh, allergy. She's not not coming to church thinking, I want to get delivered because she already got it. It's, It's two weeks old now. And so she doesn't need hope for that anymore because it's come. But hope keeps you driving forward. Like if you hope to be healed, you will come. Or you will read or you will confess scripture. If you hope to be healed, you'll find a way to get to Jesus. If you hope for any other miracle, you'll find the promises and you'll go after them. Verse 25, but if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it or endure for it with perseverance. Perseverance. We're not just twiddling thumbs, we're persevering. And in general, he's talking about the hope of eternal life. Verse 26, likewise, the spirit also helps our weaknesses, helps in our weaknesses. King James says infirmity, same word, infirmities and weaknesses. Weaknesses is probably better here uh, because it covers everything, not just a physical infirmity, but it's the same Greek word. The spirit helps in our weaknesses for we do not what we should not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings, which cannot be uttered. Now we see that the spirit's going to help us. He helps our weaknesses. We don't know what we should pray for as we ought to. And this is where you have to get out of your mind sometimes, meaning don't just go with what you know you need. Like your first moments in prayer should not be your, you know, ask the Lord list. You with me? We teach on prayer. Your first, the first thing you do in prayer is not to just start with the God, please, and do this and do this and do this. You don't know what you even need. You think you need those things, but the spirit actually knows. Your spirit knows and the Holy Spirit knows. And remember the scripture that says, you know, what, what things does the spirit know? Only the spirit knows the things of God and only the spirit of man knows the things inside the man. And so you're going to have to let the spirit help you pray. And that's why tongues is so important. You have to get out of your mind and pray without your understanding so that you can hook up with him. He is the one who makes intercession for us with groanings that can't be uttered. This doesn't mean the Holy Spirit prays for you. He's not doing the praying. So you can't sit there and say, Holy Spirit, pray for me. I'm a little tired today. Could you please just pray for me? No, he's going to help you. He, He helps. He's our helper. Jesus said, I will give you another helper, a paraclete, a standby. He will guide you. He will help you. He's not going to do it for you. He's not going to teach you how to be lazy. He's going to help you do what needs to get done. He's going to help you pray. But in the praying, he's going to help you pray right. Matter of fact, the Holy Spirit's going to help you approach God properly. You don't approach God, gimme, 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 gimme. You don't approach God with uh, false humility. You don't approach God with guilt. 
The Holy Spirit's going to help you approach God in faith. Boldly come to the throne of grace. He's going to help you do it, right? But you've got to pray in tongues a bit. You've got to yield to him. So it says, with groanings, he makes intercession for the saints with groanings, which cannot be uttered. Uh, and sometimes you might have found yourself praying in tongues with those groanings where you can't really, so, oh, it just feels like it's real, real deep. Uh, and that's really what we call intercession. It's where the Holy Spirit and your spirit have hooked up to, to pray something into the kingdom or pray through a problem or pray for somebody or maybe a salvation for somebody. And it just feels like you're, oh, and, it, and you're, you can tell something's different there. That would be the groanings that can't be uttered. But actually you are uttering them, right? So it's not just means you're sitting there and quiet. You are uttering something. And it's tongues, really, that you're uttering. Uh, one, one Greek scholar P.C. Nelson said this. He said that really that phrase should be translated with groanings that cannot be uttered in articulate speech, referring to tongues. So it's not just you sitting around going, oh, oh. I guess we could do without the example. but with tongues, with groanings that cannot be uttered. And then verse 27, it says, Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. So he that searches the hearts, and that's, you go over 1 Corinthians 2, you'll see that it's God that knows, the, only God knows the heart, uh, and only the Spirit of God knows the things of God. But he that searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Uh, turn with me to, well, should we read that? Well, go to 1 Corinthians 2, we'll read it because we're going to go to 4, 1 Corinthians 14. 1 Corinthians 2. First Corinthians 2, verse 9. As it is written, eyes not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those that love him. But God has revealed them to us through his spirit. And this is where that if we're not really having a relationship with the spirit, you won't know what's been given to you. Only through the spirit can you know what God's given to you, to us. But God has revealed them to us through his spirit, for the spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. Stop there and go to chapter 14. So now all of a sudden it requires something about the Holy Spirit. Like we have to actually have a connection and relationship with the Holy Spirit if we're going to go far with God. If we're going to know what he's given to us, if we're going to partake of that, if we're going to get any help from him making intercession for us, we're going to have to have a relationship somehow with the Holy Spirit. The Holy what? Yeah, the Holy Spirit is very misunderstood. People can understand God. They can understand Jesus who died on the cross. They can be saved. But until they understand the Holy Spirit, their prayer life will suffer. Them receiving promises of God will be very, very difficult until they get a relationship with the Holy Spirit. Not just in thought, not just in belief, but in practicality, meaning 
I actually have a relationship praying with him, knowing how he makes intercession, knowing how he helps me in prayer, helps my weaknesses. 1 Corinthians 14 uh, says, verse 2, he who speaks in a tongue or an unknown tongue does not speak to men, but to God, for no one understands him. However, in the spirit, he speaks mysteries. However, in the spirit, he speaks mysteries. Well, why would I want to speak mysteries? Well, it looks like it's important. Do you want to, are you going to really contradict the scripture? Do you really have to get an attitude against Paul the apostle right here? <laughs> in the spirit, he speaks mysteries. What, what, could, what good could come of that? Well, later on it says, he that prays in an unknown tongue, let him pray that he may interpret First, you need to speak the mysteries out by the Spirit, because you don't know them. You can't, you can't formulate these in your brain. Let the mysteries come out in tongues, and then ask the Lord for the interpretation. Right. Or later, you'll get the interpretation. Or as you walk with God, your spirit will then begin to get revelation of God, and you don't even remember which prayer started it, or which tongues paragraph started it. So speaking in tongues is not to show off in front of men. You're not speaking to men. Right. You're speaking to God. Hallelujah. And that's totally different than in church when somebody speaks a tongue and another person interprets that tongue so you hear a message from God. That's tongues and interpretation, but it's for the public scene. This right here is not for the public scene. <clears throat> or if it is for the public scene, it's with someone interpreting what was just said. That's what this this whole chapter is about, but I don't want to really teach that. So let's go to verse four. He who speaks in a tongue or an unknown tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. And so another way to say it is he who prays in tongues edifies himself. He who prophesies edifies the church. Prophecy is in your known language. Uh, and then we could also say he who speaks in tongues in public with an interpretation from the spirit also edifies the church. So tongues in public plus interpretation by the spirit equals prophecy. Prophecy is a message from God to everybody. Tongues plus interpretation is the exact same result. Those are both totally different than praying in tongues, edifying myself. Verse 14, for if I pray in a tongue, or in an unknown tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. See that? This is where you distinguish, okay, if I pray in an unknown tongue, my spirit's praying, but my understanding is unfruitful, meaning I can't understand what I'm saying. Can you understand what you're saying in tongues when you pray in tongues? I have no idea what that is. And some people are like, I don't even know what I'm doing. You're not supposed to. Enjoy that, that you don't have to comprehend stuff. Let the Holy Spirit take you where he needs you. Let him pray mysteries. Let him speak through you. Let him pray to God the perfect will of God. He makes intercession for us according to the will of God. This is how you can solve problems without even knowing there was a problem. This is how you can prepare yourself for coming challenges, not even knowing what's coming. And then when the challenge comes, you can just sidestep it. You don't have to ever be in fear. You've prayed it through. And, you know, I have a daily life of praying in tongues and then, man, challenges, I just jump over them, overcome them, conquer all of them, not worried about any of them, trust God right through them, see miracles, all sorts of things happen if you're prepared, Amen. but you're only prepared if you're edifying yourself in tongues. If I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding's unfruitful. Glory to God. Thank you, Jesus. 
verse 15. I think y'all need to be praying in tongues is what I'm trying. What Paul's trying to say is y'all ought to pray in tongues. And then at the end of this chapter, he says, listen, do not forbid anybody to pray in tongues. He said, matter of fact, I speak in tongues more than everybody. Paul prayed in tongues more than everybody. Why would he have to say that? Is he bragging? No, he's trying to emphasize how important it is. Pray in tongues more, your life will be better. Amen. Just period. Pray in tongues more on purpose every day and your life will be better. But I don't know what I'm saying. <laughs> Do we got to go through that again? And that's where people who need to be stimulated in their mind, they're going to miss the faith life. When people have to figure it all out, man, you're going to miss a lot of miracles. And then what's verse 15, what's the conclusion then? Uh, Paul says, I will pray with the spirit and I will also pray with the understanding. Notice he's distinguishing. Either you pray with understanding in your known language or, or we can say, and you also pray with the spirit, which is totally different. Praying with the spirit is not praying in your known language, either with understanding or with the spirit. Right. Now, as you pray, the Holy Spirit will help you pray even in English or Spanish or whatever language you speak. He'll help you pray in your known language as well, uh, but it's different. When you say pray with the spirit, that means I'm praying in tongues. That's the opposite of praying with my understanding. I will also sing with the Spirit, and I'll, I will also sing with the understanding. All of a sudden, now we're supposed to be singing in the Spirit. Right. We, we know you sing in English a lot. <laughs> or you let somebody else sing for you a lot, but you also could sing with the Spirit. And so that's why sometimes we try to help you practice in church, sing with the Spirit, sing in tongues, sing in your prayer language. It'll help you get connected to God and have a refreshing delight. Now, in the 30 seconds that we do it here, it may not do much, but if you'll remember that you know how to do this, you can do it at home. You can do it in the car and you can sing in tongues. Matter of fact, you can take a secular song that's filled with goofiness and you can just sing in tongues to it. I go through walking through like a mall or something, hearing the music, and I'm just singing in tongues to all the, I like the beat. And then sometimes in church, I like to sing some of them old goofy. No, I'm just kidding. <clears throat> oh yeah, verse 18, I thank my God I speak with tongues more than you all. So he wasn't really bragging. Uh, he was making a point. So, all right, go back to uh, Romans 8. And there's a, there's a lot of, uh, there's art. There's an art in praying in tongues, where if you'll give yourself to it and practice and do it a lot, you'll find this happens for yourself. And the Holy Spirit will teach you and train you. Uh, you'll see your tongues change and you might be speaking in known languages like Chinese or uh, Urdu or anything. You know, it might just come out and you recognize, wow, I remember a couple words, I recognize a couple words there. And then you'll recognize how he feels when he prays with you. Uh, so it's almost like sometimes you've got to start in the flesh. You've got to pray in tongues by faith. You don't need a special leading from the Holy Spirit to pray in tongues. I can start praying in tongues right now. I don't need a leading from him. And if I, if I give myself to it for about five, 10 minutes, uh, usually that's about all it takes and I can get into the spirit. One, then you're into the spirit. So you start off for a little while by yourself or, or just doing it by faith. And then all of a sudden you're, you're, you're in the spirit. 
And if you'll stay in the Spirit and pray through in the Spirit, just, just keep all the outside distractions away and just stay in the Spirit and stay in the Spirit, you will actually pray yourself to the completion of it. And you'll feel like it's changed, like I'm praying and praying and praying. It might be just 30 minutes, might be an hour, could be longer. I'm just praying and 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 praying. And all of a sudden, your forehead changes. And I'm praying and I'm praying and I'm praying and I'm praying. And I feel like I'm done. The Holy Spirit will help you know when you're done. And it's real refreshing, and it might be with a smile or just a refreshing, or it might be with a note of praise or a song. Or, uh, so this is, this, this is how you give yourself to the Holy Spirit. You start practicing with him. He, pray, he helps you pray through problems, whether you know of them or not. And then he helps you know when you're done praying, because he's not going to put a burden on that you can't fulfill. I mean, some Christians feel like they never pray enough. Well, you can pray enough. Amen. You actually can pray enough. Now, don't put an undue burden on yourself and feel guilty every time you leave. Well, I prayed three hours, but I know I could have gone longer. He's not doing that to you. That's weird, isn't it? Think of God has a, a desire for you and a purpose for you, and it's not to put a burden that you can't fulfill on you, but you do got to give yourself to it. You got to be honest about this. I mean, like five minutes a week ain't enough. How do I know? I just know. And praying in your car is good, uh, but you ought to probably do it more than just your car. Use all the time you got, but you know, you might want to have some focus time when you're not distracted by anything. All right, verse 28. So now that we've given ourselves to the Holy Spirit, he's made intercession for us. He's helped us uh, in our weaknesses. He's uh, made intercession according to the will of God. Verse 28, now we can, we can take verse 28 promise. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. We all love that scripture because we can take any situation and say, well, God's going to turn some things around here and make it, make it good. Uh, some people have misused the scripture and said, well, you know, the bad thing happened. God gave me that, so he'll turn it around and make it good. doesn't say he gave you bad things so he could turn it around and make it good. It just says no matter what you're in or what you're experiencing, uh, he, he, he will make all things work together for good for you. So even though you had a calamity, even though maybe one of your dumb decisions caused you to, you know, get trapped by the devil in some way or, or messed up your life in some way, he can take that and turn it around for good. So that's how you need to look at it, that no matter where you're at and why you're there, he can turn it around for good. But don't go one step further and say, well, he gave me the bad so he could do the good. He had to get me, you know, destroyed so that I could turn to him and then he could turn it off for good and I'd give him glory. That's not what the scripture says, so let's not read into it. And the stipulation is you do have to love God to claim this one. It'll work together if you really love him, if you're really sincere. Well, God knows I love him. You wouldn't say that if you really loved him. You wouldn't have to convince yourself that you love him if you really love him. You wouldn't even have to convince others, well, God knows I love him. I don't know. Don't say that anymore. Don't say it like that. We know that all things work together for good to those that love him who are the called according to his purpose. Are you living his purpose? Are you actually trying to follow his purpose? Do you even care about his real will for your life or are you doing your own thing? So if you're doing your own thing, you can't really expect that all things are going to turn out for good. 
until you decide, oh, and then, he, then all those bad things, he can turn it around and get you back on plan A. Verse 29, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called, whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. Wow, now it brings this word predestined into the mix. And uh, I want to say some things about it, but I think I want to wait until chapter 9 because there's more to say. Uh, just know this, that God foreknows everything. And he predestined, if you're here saved, he knew that was going to happen. And so since the beginning of time, he knew you'd be here on Wednesday night, the whatever, in December of 2020, whatever. He knew you'd be here. He knew you'd be saved. He knew exactly. So we could say, since he knew it long ago, that you were predestined. He knows who's going to get saved tomorrow. He knows who's going to reject him. So you could say that because he foreknows it, that was his ultimate vision. Uh, but let's not say that he forced it. He didn't force you to get saved. He doesn't force unbelievers to reject. So this is where Christians have split for a long time, that if it's all up to God, what am I even doing? Well, no, that's not how it works. So we're going to have to go through some of those uh, ideas and those questions using other scriptures. So just stay tuned and, and, and realize this, that God, God is so powerful and omniscient and omnipotent that he can know the future without forcing it, without causing it, without overriding human will. He knows what you're going to choose. He does not force you to choose it. He knows all the details of your life before they happen. He does not force them to come to pass. He knows when you're on plan B, C, D, E, F. And he knows that one day you're going to choose right and get on plan A. But he does not make you go the wrong way so that he can then get you on the right way. So you got you to gotta give a little divine leeway to God rather than try to pigeonhole him into predestined and called and ordained because those words are used in the New Testament. That if you're saved, you're called. Well, I'm called and you're not called. Well, you're only called because you chose Christ. Once you choose him, you're called. You're the holy nation. You're the peculiar people. After you called, you got saved. You were ordained for eternal life. He knew that. So anyway, there's more to say. There's more to read. But just I want to pause that for a second. I want you to see that Jesus was the firstborn among many brethren. He was the firstborn among many brethren. So we are brothers with Jesus. One of the relationships we have with the Godhead is with Jesus Christ, our brother. He is our Lord and he is our Savior, but he's also our brother. With the same father. He's the firstborn, we're the many other born. I'm the one billionth and 654,000. <laughs> but you got to realize that there's a, there's a relationship here where we get the same stuff. We're, we're brothers, there's something in there. There's something about that. Now, some have gone too far with this and said that Jesus got born again just like we did. No, he was never not born again. Some people say he had to go to hell to, get, to die and then get born again. No, he didn't get reborn. We got reborn. We, we, but he was already born again. He was already alive unto God. Right. Right. <clears throat> the first one, the first human to be alive unto God. We're the next ones alive unto God. Yeah. Verse 30, moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. 
Whom he called, these he justified. Whom he justified, these he also glorified. It said in the past tense, so you were glorified and sanctified and justified long ago. Amen. So start walking that out. Just start, just start living your life as if you're called, as if you're justified. And as if you're glorified. You need to know that you've been glorified. Did you know you were glorified? You're glorified. Now, you're not stealing glory from him. He gave it to you. Your glory, as you recognize that you've got some glory on you, you glorify him better. We're not stealing it from him. We're showing him off. I mean, to do that, you're going to have to smile at some point in your life. You'll have to smile. You'll have to be a happy Christian. You'll have to be a joy-filled Christian. You'll have to exemplify Christ if you're really going to show off the glory of God. But he has glorified you. Even though the outside may not be showing it, inside your spirit, you're glorified in there. The goal is to get that outward man broken down enough where the inside man can come out and say, hello, world. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. That that reminds me of uh, uh, Paul Crouch's book, uh, Hello World. Anybody ever read that? Anybody know who Paul Crouch is? Anybody care? All right, Paul Crouch was one of the forerunners uh, on Christian television, on, started a, a Christian TV station that went around the world. And his first satellite program, his first program on his new station, he opened, he, it, they turned on the camera and his first words were, hello world. <laughs> but if you think about it, that was before the internet, that was before... He, It was Christians deciding we need to spread this message around the world. People, some people don't like Christian television and all that. Well, the the content is important, but at the same time, he was a sincere man of God who wanted to reach the world. And yes, they had to take offerings and and do telethons. Why? To get to those people out there. So I'm not vouching for everything that's ever been done on TV, but let's not throw out all the good stuff because somebody had it in their heart that this whole world needs Jesus. Amen. And I think he aired in Jerusalem on his first program as well. It was around the world, and that's why he said, hello, world. Anyway, so just reminded me of that. All right. Verse 30. Oh, no. Verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And that's one of our favorite scriptures, right? There's nothing that can stop you. This scripture helps you go through the troop. You can run over a wall. You can do anything with this scripture. If God's for me, who can be against me? If, if God's, I can say it for me, if God's for me, don't you be against me. Because I read it first. Whoever reads it first gets to claim it. No. If God be for me, who can be against me? If God's for us, who can be against us? Well, nobody. If he's with us, listen, you don't have to worry. You do have to follow, and you have to get orders, and you have to follow, but you, you don't have to worry. So if God's for us, who can be against us? So the devil certainly can't destroy you. Greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. Demons can't destroy you. So you're going to have to put the devil low, keep him low. Nothing can destroy me. Uh, there's still too many people that don't understand this, that, you know, oh, well, you know, I'm stepping out, and all of a sudden, all hell's breaking loose. Well, if God's for you, who can be against you? 
Oh, no, they said that if you do something for God, man, you can expect all hell to break. Well, you can expect that. I'm going to expect this. You show me your scripture, I'll show you my scripture. And here's the truth, you won't have one. You won't have that. You won't be able to find two or three scriptures that have that doctrine. So don't make up stuff. Because I know the more you do, the bigger the devil is going to squash your life. Tell that to Billy Graham. He lived till what, 99? How old was he? Tell it to Jimmy Swagger. Tell it to Kenneth Hagin. Tell it to Kenneth Cole. Tell it to all the preachers that have done something for God. Shouldn't their lives have been destroyed a long time ago? It's just an excuse to lose. Verse 30, oh, I'm sorry, verse 32. It's an excuse to stop. It's an excuse to, to bring people into the, your difficulties. Don't do that. Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Wait a second. You mean God's given us freely all things? It says here he gave us freely all things. You go read scripture over in Corinthians, it says that all things are yours. Peter, the apostle, is yours. Paul is yours. Apollos is yours. Christ is ours. Everything is Christ. All things are God's. And he's given them all to us. It says all are yours. All things are yours. Has he not given us freely all things to enjoy? Richly to enjoy? You got to realize he's given us all things. You should, you should not have any lack. I have never seen a righteous son of God who knows who they are in Christ begging for bread. Hallelujah. Has he not given us freely all things? Freely meaning you don't have to earn it. You don't have to become a better Christian in order to receive the promises of God. Amen. You just need to become a believing one. And as one of, the, one of the results of this is as you become a believing Christian, receiving all of these things freely from God, it alerts you to his goodness. And it's his goodness that leads you to repent. That's the process. The process is not get good so that you can get a blessing. It's get the blessing so that you can recognize his goodness and begin to walk closer to him. You need to get a promise. You need to get a prayer answered. You need to get a promise from God. You need to receive some of these things so that you'll have a motivation to, to hear his voice. You need to hear his voice so that you can desire him more, so that you can want to go to prayer. Like if you don't think God's ever going to speak to you, you won't go to prayer. Part of, the laugh, part of laughing in the spirit is that you, all of a sudden, you, you, your spirit goes up so high, it's like, whoa, I see it all. Your spirit, man, sees the reality, takes you out of this humdrum life. So how do we know God gave us all things? Well, he gave us his son. Why would he give us the most important thing and not every other secondary thing? 
Verse 33, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It's Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who's even at the right hand of God, who makes intercession for us. Nobody can condemn you. Not even the devil can condemn you because Christ already did this. Christ already went for us. Who can condemn you? How could the devil condemn you in the court? Christ already did it. The devil wants to, you know, accuse and Christ is sitting there with a smile on his face. You got to feel this. You, you got to live this way that you, you, can't live, you can't live with condemnation. you think this is bad, wait till we read verse 35 (laughs) through through 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword or another U.S. election? (laughs) What can separate us from the love of Christ? As it is written, for your sake, we're killed all day long. We were accounted as sheep for the slaughter. He's referring back to the fact that preachers were, they were, they were living the hard life. We, we commission all, all Christians to be ready for the hard life. I mean, all, all, uh, all preachers to live for the, preachers back then had a hard life. So much that he said, we're killed and y'all are alive. Don't forget us. We're out here dying for, y'all are living, we're dying. He said that in another place. But we do that with ministers that we commission. Uh, we at least say to them, be prepared for the hard life. Of course, in America and around the world, really, you know, it's not so hard quite like it was there. But be prepared for it. Be prepared for it. You, you, you might have to go through a lot of stuff, so you need to be prepared for it. It's one of the signs of, of real preachers and apostles uh, is that you've taken some persecution. And that you've had some suffering and that you've lived without Um, verse 37, yet, uh, let me read, let me read this from, uh, okay. Verse 37, yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So we like that because we're more than a conqueror through him who loved us. Another translation says it this way says, listen, in everything, Jesus, our great leader, has established us as invincible, invincible champions through his amazing love for us. We're invincible champions, more than conquerors. For I'm persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor debt, Depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, Hallelujah. our Lord. Well, I could shout it, but I don't think I need to. <laughs> nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God. No death, no life, no angels, no principalities, nothing can separate us from the love of God. No demon can get between you and God. If a demon does get between you and God, what are you supposed to do to it? 
tell it to go. Tell it to go. You have to take authority, but nothing can really be between you and God. If you feel like, oh, I just have this, I just feel like, oh, it's been such a struggle. Man, okay. Let me give you an example. Uh, Kenneth Hagin tells this story where the Lord uh, uh, appeared to him in a vision form, and he was standing there, and the Lord began to talk to him about demons and demonology and the power of God. And as Jesus, in this vision, begins to talk to him, uh, Kenneth Hagin's standing there trying to listen, but he couldn't hear because there was a demon in between him and Jesus. And the demon was creating all this smoke interference and jumping up and down and saying, yakety yak, yakety yak, yakety yak. I, don't, I guess that's exactly what he was saying because that's the way Brother Hagin tells it. Yakety yak, yakety yak, yakety yak. Making noise where, where Brother Hagin couldn't hear Jesus. Jesus stood standing there talking. Jesus trying to teach him. And he's missing the whole message. And this went on for, for quite a while. And Brother Hagin said, I got so frustrated. I said, in the name of Jesus, get out of here. And the thing hit the dirt, kerflop, and took off. And the smoke disappeared. And Jesus stopped talking for a second. He said, if you hadn't have done something, I couldn't have. Brother Hagin said, wait a second. I think I might have misunderstood you. You, you said that if I hadn't have done something, uh, you wouldn't have. Jesus said, no. I said that if you hadn't have done something, I couldn't have. He said, no, 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 I must be mishearing you. You know, Brother Hagin had to go through everything three times. <laughs> Partly just because every word should be established by two or three witnesses. Let's hear it three times. That'll, that'll, I know what I heard. And, and Jesus said, no, I said that if you hadn't have done something about that demon, I couldn't have. What did Brother Hagin do? He used the name of Jesus, made the demon leave. If you're having trouble with demons, don't be waiting on God to do something. He's waiting on you to do something. And if you'll do it, he'll do it. He said, if you, he said you're supposed to cast out demons. In my name, you'll cast out demons. If you demand anything to happen in my name, he said, I will do it. So that helped him learn a big lesson that you have to take some authority over evil stuff or wrong things that are going on in your life, especially if it's stopping your communication with God or hindering your life or causing your, your body to be sick. You have to do something. You have to stop the infirmities. You have to take a stand and, and make, the, make the devil do what he's supposed to do. He will flee if you tell him to. If you resist, he will go. But you have to do the resisting. And you have to stand firm and act like it's so. This is how he has freely, freely given you all things. Yes, they're free, but you do have to take a step of faith. Does that make sense? If you're scared at home at night, if you're having bad dreams, if you're uh, in fear of anything, I mean, people are in fear of spiders and bad people and criminals and peanut butter. There's a, there's a phobia that's afraid of peanut butter. Well, hey, if you grew up with peanut allergies or some kind of nut allergies, you're afraid of, I mean, you're walking around daily. Daily, every restaurant, every move, everything you do, worried about. Listen, that is demonic stuff. That's, that's destroying your life, and you need to take a stand and say, wait a second. You mean I could actually be safe? Yes, if you'll learn who you are in Christ, and you'll learn a little bit about the power of God in the name of Jesus, and, and get hooked up with the Holy Spirit. He'll help you take authority over all these things that you're supposed to be freed from. And he'll keep you free at night, and he'll keep you safe at night, and he'll keep you freed from fear in the dark. 
And you don't have to sleep with the light on. All these things that humans go through, trying to make it through this world. God's given us freely all things. He's given you all the solutions for your life. But you have to take a stand. You have to take a stand. Hallelujah. And if something did happen, if something did begin to occur, instantly you stop it in the name of Jesus. We've just heard of a couple stories recently where church members, somebody passed out. The, the spouse or the, the family member jumped up and said, no, in the name of Jesus, wake back up. And even after they had gone blue, they got back up. You got to be quick though. You, you got to know who you are. You got to know what to do. You got to be ready for some of this stuff. I like to tell the story of a, a, um, a preacher. No, it was, it was a preacher and he's up in Michigan and I don't, anyway, so he tells this story that he had been teaching on the name of Jesus and the authority that we have in the, uh, the authority of the believer in his church. And, um, this teenager, uh, that was in his church was at home one night and, uh, somebody, she's lived on the second floor. She, she's lived on the second. I mean, she was in the second floor of the home and a, and a burglar began to crawl through her window on the second floor and got into her room and she, she's like 16 years old. She sits up in the bed and she says, in the name of Jesus, and before she could even say anything else, that criminal, that burglar ran back out the room, jumped out the window and took off. Well, she called the cops and got the mom and dad involved and they called the pastor, Mark Barkley was his name. They called the pastor and he came over and so the cops came and everybody's there and they're, they're checking what's going on here. And they caught the guy. The, the cops caught the guy and they brought him back to the, to the cop car. And uh, this criminal has this story. They said, well, the, he said, well, how did, somebody said, how did you find him? They said, well, we just followed his clothes. They said, what do you mean we followed his clothes? They said, yeah, we just followed his clothes and he was hiding behind the bush. And so they got this criminal. They said, why'd you take your clothes off? He said, boy, you would have too. He said, when I jumped out of that window, there was a, it was because there was a huge, huge man chasing me. And, and I could tell that he was after me, not on the outside. He, he was after me on the inside. And it just made me want to take my clothes off because I knew he was trying to get me on the inside. It was an angel chasing him out of that house down the street. What happened? A young lady knew the name of Jesus was the solution for her problem. And she didn't have to go through some theological sermon. She just had to say it with authority. And so that's one of the ways that, that God saves us from our adversary, saves us from calamity, helps us avoid suffering. At the first sign of a sickness, jump on it. At the first sign of a poverty, jump on it. At the first sign of the lost job, jump on it. Don't you go through a season of sulking. Don't you get sad. Don't you drive home all upset. Don't you dare. And the next morning, don't you get up at noon. You jump up at 7 a.m. like normal. Get ready. You pray in tongues and you look for a job and you take steps necessary for God to supply your need like he said he would. You don't act like a, a sorry little, you know, poor, rotten thing that has nothing. He gave you all things. And don't you dare, if you lose your job, don't you dare. Don't you dare take the severance pay. And then, and then wait, well... I can, now I can, go, I can go three months without looking for a job because I got all this money. Don't you dare do that dumb stuff. That's right. 
No, you, the next day you need to be looking for work. Oh no, I need a little vacation. No, you don't. You need to get a job. This is your chance to get ahead. This is your chance to quit living off the bottom. You keep that money, you plan on that money being your savings, you do something good with that money and you hold on to as much as you can, you go ahead and get your next job that's gonna pay more and then you live your life. You don't live, don't live like a heathen. Don't live like a poverty-minded heathen. This was not part of Romans chapter eight. This is because all of this stuff we do in here is supposed to change the way you think. It's to change and renew your mind. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You gotta think differently. Most of you grew up with a poverty mindset. Most of us grew up not having enough, not knowing how to handle money, not thinking about income right, not thinking about work right, not thinking about being with God and him supplying right. So you got to relearn your life. Hallelujah. Thank you for joining Pastors Chaz and Joni today from Houston Faith Church. If you're looking for a good home church in Houston, Texas, we'd like to invite you to be our guest anytime. What you'll find is the Houston Faith Church is highly committed to the Word of God, the love of God, and the Spirit-filled life and ministry that Jesus expects. We know that everyone wants to make a difference in this life, and that the Great Commission of the Lord Jesus Christ is the main thing for all of us. You'll find your purpose here and grow strong in faith at Houston Faith Church. Find more faith-building resources on our YouTube channel or subscribe to our free audio podcast. You can also connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. See you soon.